You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. We are going to read the whole chapter, so if you are not able to remain standing, that is okay. But for those who are able... Let's read the chapter together. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, verse four, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they were both, so both of them were there together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Verse 
So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kamul, the father of Aram, Jesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehesh, and Mekah. This is God's word to us this morning. Please be seated. As we have just read, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we come to the 22nd chapter in this great narrative of Holy Scripture. If chapter 21, if chapter 21 was the climax of God's sovereign grace in the life of Abraham with the miraculous birth of his son Isaac, if chapter 21 is the climax in God's sovereign grace, then, as Gordon Winham writes, chapter 22 is the theological summit of the whole story of Abraham. It's the theological summit in the whole story of Abraham. And as I would argue and will argue this morning, this is not only a theological summit in the life of Abraham, but one of the main theological summits in all of the Bible. Because from this vista, this perch, we have a view of redemption, a review of redemptive history that is unparalleled. Chapter 22 is rich in theology. It is emotionally draining and it is rich in theology. And believe it or not, chapter 22 of Genesis is rich in practical relevance for today. So just in case you're, you're tempted to zone out because you're not, a, you're not bookish or you're not into rich theology, don't tune out. This has practical, real-life relevance for your life today. For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah waited. They waited. They waited for their promised son Isaac to arrive. They had been through family splits. They had been through a world war. They had been through personal failure. They had been through literally fire and brimstone. More personal failure. For 25 years, they waited for this promised son that would bless the womb of Sarah. And that indeed from Isaac, all of the nations would be blessed. They waited And then in God's timing, when Abraham was a hundred years old and Sarah was 90, God came through on his promise. A miraculous nativity, a miraculous birth took place. The boy whose name means laughter comes into the world. Isaac, the son of promise, is born. After 25 years of waiting, 
the son of promise is here. And after three years old, he was weaned from his mother and a great feast ensued, a celebration that the son of promise is, is growing up. He's going to be a healthy boy. The, the promise of many nations is, is secure. And that three-year-old little boy grew up into a young lad, into a, a teenager, a young teenager, with a godly and great future ahead of him. All was well. And then a storm rolls in. A storm that catches everyone by surprise. Chapter 22. If you had never read chapter 22 before, you have to read it and reread it. Am I reading what I'm reading? In chapter 22, God commands Abraham to do something unthinkable. Something that is nauseating, shocking, something that would seem in, to be contrary to the very character of God himself. God commands Abraham to kill the son of laughter. So a storm rolls in. And this leads us to our first scene in Genesis 22, the testing of Abraham. Look at verse 1 and 2 again with me. Moses, our author, says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, that is God, said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which, which I shall tell you. Verse 1 offers the reader, you and I, some very relieving insight. Right off of the bat, you and I, the reader, Abraham doesn't get this relief, but we get the relief, and we learn from verse 1 that indeed God was testing Abraham. After these things, Moses writes, God tested Abraham. Nassau is the word for tested in the Hebrew. And, and it means, it, it comes with it, this idea to establish or prove something out. It means to, to test something. To Nassau means to reveal what is at the core of something. to bring to the surface the character or the integrity of a thing. And so here in Genesis 22, and indeed all throughout Scripture, we see God testing his people. We see that not just here. We see it all throughout redemptive history and all throughout Scripture. God testing his people, bringing to the surface that which is at the core of them. And of course, God does not do this for his own benefit. God knows the heart of man. He knows our thoughts before we think them. God doesn't test human beings for his own benefit. No, he tests human beings for our benefit. God tests to purify, to sanctify. 
God tests ultimately to reestablish himself at the center of his people's lives. Testing is indeed a benefit to the people of God. And although testing is rarely pleasant, I don't know if it's ever pleasant, (laughs) come to think of it. Although it is rarely pleasant, it is actually a gracious thing for God to test his people. To not be tested by God is a sign of judgment. For God to just sort of let you go your way and to not test you is a sign of judgment, not grace. In fact, listen to the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The apostle says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So according to the apostle Peter, it is a glorious thing to be tested by God. Because when God tests, he reveals. He burns away the dross. He purifies. He sanctifies. And here, Abraham would encounter, in Genesis 22, Abraham would encounter the greatest test of all. Well, some of you might say, I think it would be greater if Abraham were to just sort of give his own life for something. I disagree. I think it would be easier for Abraham to put himself on the altar than his own son. This is the greatest test of all. God says again in verse 2, and notice the language. Take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, Ishmael is gone. He's been pushed out and he's left. Isaac alone is the son of the promise. And God says, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Providentially, this would become the site of Israel's first temple, Moriah. But then God says something, just chilling. And there offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let's not sanitize this, beloved. God is commanding Abraham to slaughter his son like you would an animal. And have then, after the slaughter... Isaac wholly consumed by fire in a burnt offering. A burnt offering was to communicate one's total commitment to God alone. As this thing is wholly consumed in flames, oh God, may it be that I am wholly consumed with your will. That's what a burnt offering was. Oh, that's good and great, except God is asking for Isaac to be on the altar. By now, Isaac is probably a young boy, a young lad, a young teenager. There's been relationship established with he and his father. Years of relationship. 
and the command is given to end his life. This is the worst possible scenario for a parent. It doesn't get worse than this. And so you would expect in this scene, in this trial of testing from the Lord, you would expect Abraham to hesitate, right? We've seen Abraham fail miserably. He flinched at the, the, the thought of, of losing his own life and gave his, his wife over as his sister twice. So you, we all expect Abraham to hesitate, but he doesn't. He doesn't hesitate. Look at verse 3 and following. So, verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. With earnest, he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then verse 4, on the third day, now notice, now try to get into the skin of the patriarch in this moment. On the third day, so it takes three days to get there. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Imagine the pit in his stomach as he sees the place where he is to sacrifice his own son. Then verse 5, keep reading. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham, verse 6, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, and in his hand he took the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, "My father." And he said, "Here I am, my son." And Isaac said, "Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering?" Abraham said. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. What a scene. What a heart-wrenching scene. Isaac says to his father, Dad, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the offering? Abraham ascends the mount of severe testing. That's what's going on. He is ascending the mount of severe testing. And at the beginning of their journey, we get some really important insight into what is going on in the patriarch. What is in his mind and what is in his heart that he would get up early in the morning to take this journey. First, listen, when Abraham tells the men, did you notice that? In verse five, he tells the men, traveling with him to stay behind. And then he says something very interesting. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and then come again to you. That's interesting because the verb for come at the end of verse five is in the plural form, which means Abraham is saying to these men, me and the boy are going to go over there and worship. And then me and the boy are coming back. Me and the boy are going over there, and then me and the boy are coming back. Secondly, 
when Isaac says, Father, we have everything we need for a sacrifice except an animal, Abraham responds in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. In this moment, beloved, Abraham is not operating based on sight. He's not operating based on sight. Instead, he is trusting in the very character of God that somehow God will bring my boy back with me. Somehow God will provide a sacrifice. He is banking on God's previous promise that through Isaac, nations would come. He's banking on the very character of God. Now, we don't know how much Abraham knew about God's view of child sacrifice. But if you're a student of the Bible, you know that child sacrifice is one of the greatest of sins in God's economy. If you read throughout redemptive history, throughout the Old Testament, God would judge whole nations for sacrificing children. And so praise be to God, to the reader, we go, God's not going to do it, Abraham, but Abraham doesn't have the canon of Scripture before him. Pacifying the moment, sanitizing the story. Abraham is operating not on sight, but on faith. What Abraham did know is that God said that it would be through Isaac that God would bring a nation. What Abraham did know is that up to this point in his life, God had a perfect record in keeping promises. Perfect. Therefore, Abraham is thinking, somehow Isaac is coming back with me. How? I don't know. Somehow God will provide a sacrifice. How so? How do you know? I don't. I'm banking only on the promise of God and the character of God. We get some insight from the author of, of, of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. The author of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Verse 18, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Look at verse 19. Here's the key. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the author of Hebrews is providing some helpful insight into what could be going on in the patriarch's mind. God's just going to have to raise him from the dead. but my boy is coming back with me and God will provide a sacrifice. Now, before we hurry off to the next scene in this chapter, there is a call to us this morning. Right now, as we sit here, there is a call to us this morning to not look to the things that are seen. For the things that are seen are temporal And they are passing away. But instead to look to the things that are unseen, which are eternal and firmly fixed in the heavens, that are not passing away. 
especially when you cannot determine from your sight what the outcome is going to be. This is what it means to be a Christian, to operate not on sight, but to lean the full of your hope on the word of God and on the character of God when you cannot see a possible outcome. It's the Christian who says, somehow God will provide. Have you been there in your life? When you just have been at the threshold of your ability and the testing of God is upon you and you just throw your hands down and say, somehow God will see me through. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not to manipulate circumstances or people to get outcomes. We don't manipulate. We don't need to. We have the God who raises the dead. We have the God who provides. And so Abraham is tested. That's the first scene. The testing of Abraham and the call to us to live not by sight, but by faith. Let's look now to the intervention from God. The intervention from God. Great relief in these verses. Look at verse 9 and following. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, we don't know why Abraham bound Isaac. In a traditional sacrifice of an, of an animal, you would not bind the animal. You would just slit its throat. And then you would dismember the animal. And then you would burn the animal in a, in a burnt offering. But imagine being a father, a parent, and binding your son. Only to put him on top of an altar of wood. At this point, Isaac is not, he's a willing participant. We don't see any signs of struggle. He's still trusting his father. And he's laid out there on the altar. And Abraham takes the knife. And the word for slaughter is to slaughter an animal. And with all intentions, Abraham goes forth. But, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I can't imagine the relief of this father. I just imagine Abraham crying out, okay, I won't do it. I didn't want to do it. Here I am. 
The test from God revealed the substance of Abraham's faith. The angel says, Abraham, you feared God. You feared God. You put your son on the altar, your one and only son, the son whom you love. You put him on the altar because you feared God. Which means despite the perplexing command to kill his son, Abraham's awe of God and trust in God's character exceeded every other human loyalty, including the loyalty of a father to a son. Listen, although we must and do celebrate the progress and growth in the faith of of the patriarch, Abraham is growing in his faith. Amen? This is a sign of growth. And we ought to celebrate that in the patriarch and in ourselves when we walk in obedience and we walk by faith and not by sight. We ought to say, oh God, thank you for the progress and the sanctification in my faith. So although we celebrate progress and growth in Abraham, what's being revealed right now in this moment in Abraham is not so much the great faith he possessed. Because it wasn't too long ago that Abraham was flinching and failing as a result of a a worldly king. Pharaoh first, then Abimelech, and failing in other ways as well. It wasn't too long ago that the patriarch was failing. So what's being revealed here, I don't think, is the great faith of Abraham. No, what I think is being revealed here through this test is the greatness of the object of Abraham's faith. Namely, God himself. Here's what I mean. It was the strength of God's word and it was the strength of God's character that was cutting through the weakness of Abraham. It was the strength of the promise of God that was holding Abraham together in this moment. It was the strength of God's character, not Abraham's character, that was holding him. And the progress we see, and this is so Vital that we understand this right now. The progress we see in Abraham is the progress of weakness. Weakness is the way toward strength in God's economy. And it feels so counterintuitive. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. Abraham was more yielded to the Lord because he was more convinced of his own frailty. Abraham was more convinced of his need for God and therefore his faith is firing because he is more convinced of his own inability to hold himself together. That's what biblical faith is. Faith, biblical faith is being convinced of your own weakness and therefore all the more in need of the divine strength of God. So how do you grow up in the faith is you grow down. You get low. 
you recognize that you can't do it and faith increases. And from everybody else outside, it just looks like, oh, what a doormat, what a weakling, what a worm. (laughs) And God says, oh, that's mighty faith. Those are my people, not trusting in the flesh, but trusting in me. And so if you are here this morning and you are lamenting your little faith, if you're here this morning and you're just, Pastor, I'm, I came through these doors. I, I didn't think, I was barely pulling myself up this morning. And I'm coming in here. I'm not limping. I'm being carried. And you come in here and you're lamenting your little faith. But listen, if your little faith is in a big God, you're on your way home. You're on your way to glory Because God, a little faith in a big God is enough. It's enough. And so God intervenes in the sacrifice of Isaac. And the testing reveals the faith in the patriarch. The faith that he has placed in the object of his faith. Namely the strength of God. Now listen. Not only does the Lord intervene and therefore prevent the death of Isaac, but he also provides a substitute. This is where we're going to end this morning. Not only does the Lord prevent the death of Isaac, but he also provides a substitute. Look at verses 13 and following. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Not only does the Lord prevent, but the Lord provides. And here in verse 14, we we are given now another name for God in the Genesis story. Yahweh Ra'ah. Yahweh Ra'ah, the God who provides, if you've got a King James version, it's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Provides what? Everything. Food, life, shelter, protection, everything pertaining to life and godliness comes through the providing hand of creator God. So God provides, but in this context, God is providing something very specific, He's providing a substitute, a ram in the place of a boy, an animal in the place of a boy. Isaac crawls off the altar and is unbound and is set free. And a ram is placed on the altar and is slaughtered and wholly consumed by fire. 
And here, it's here in Genesis 22 that the practice of the death of an animal instead of the death of a human is established in redemptive history. Animal sacrifice from this moment on would start to pervade the people of God. An animal in place of a human. In fact, in Moriah is where the temple of Solomon would be built, where sacrifice of animals would, would happen day in and day out. In our place as an atonement. And to this day, Abraham says, this mount is called the Lord will provide. And oh, is God pleased with the faith that is revealed in the patriarch. He is pleased. He's so pleased that God swears by his own name, which is the first time and the last time that this will happen in Genesis, where God swears by his own name. Why? Because there's nothing higher to appeal to. So look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham. This is after the sacrifice of the ram, after the substitute. He called to Abraham a second time from heaven, verse 16, and said, this is God speaking, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And then God reestablishes the promise that blessing will indeed come through the patriarch. Now listen, on his way to Moriah and during his journey up the mountain of testing, severe turmoil, severe turmoil and pain had dashed the heart of Abraham, the father. And it's understandable. He's watching his boy carry the very same wood that was going to be used to consume his body But after the glorious intervention from God and the providing of a substitute, a ram in place of the boy, Abraham, (laughs) this whole mountain transforms from a mountain of severe testing and turmoil to now a mountain of sheer joy and jubilee as God provides. And there God reassures Abraham of his promise to bless Isaac. And he swears by his own name that he'll see it through. I said at the beginning of the sermon that this this text provides for us a a vista. You know what I mean by vista? Like a summit of a viewing point where you pull off on a a mountain and and you just look out. And you're able to see the valley. You're able to see the landscape. This is, this is what Mount Moriah does for redemptive history. Not only does Mount Moriah provide insight into the mind and character of God, not only does Mount Moriah provide critical insight into what faith is and why God tests his people, but Moriah is this perch. It's a vista through which we can see the landscape of redemptive history. It is indeed a theological summit. And so come to the edge with me for just two more minutes. And from this mountain, let's look out. And what we'll see, what we'll discover is more mountains. If we look behind us, we'll see Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat, what was that? Mount Ararat is where the ark, the boat, where 
All of the animals in Noah's family rested upon that mountain after 40 days and 40 nights of God judging the earth. And God sends a rainbow over and says, I will not flood the earth again like this. Remember Mount Ararat behind us. It's a sign of God's peace and a a sign of his grace that he would preserve mankind. Ahead of us, just a little bit, we see another mountain called Mount Sinai. And it's there God would give his people, Israel, the law, which would make them a distinct people, a holy people, that that God's people would be different than not God's people. And so the law at Mount Sinai is given through Moses. We look further ahead and we see Mount Zion. Also in the land of Moriah, again, where Solomon's temple would be built and these animal sacrifices would happen day in and day out, atoning for the sins of the people. People are not on the altar, but animals. And so we see Mount Zion as we look out on this perch. Further ahead into the New Testament, we see more mountains. We see the Mount of Olives where Jesus gives his famous sermon on the mount, his his famous interpretation on the law, like a new Moses who comes and he interprets the law of God and he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to what? Fulfill it. And on this mountain, we get the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives. And from that mountain, we see another mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember this. Where just three of Jesus' disciples got to see the dazzling glory of Christ himself as he's transfigured on the mount, declaring once and for all, for all to see that this is more than just a mere man. This is the God-man. And so we see the Mount of Transfiguration. We see all of these mountain ranges from this perch, but perhaps the clearest mountain we can see from Genesis chapter 22 is a mount called Golgotha. It's ironic. It's the last mountain, but it's the clearest one we see from this perch. It's a mount called Calvary. And what's most striking on this mountain, as another writes, what's most striking on this mountain and ought to pierce every heart in this room if you're a Christian, what's most striking is that what Abraham almost did but was spared from on this mountain, on Golgotha, God actually did. See, Golgotha was also a mount of severe testing. On Calvary, there was severe testing. Wood for sacrifice was also laid upon the back of a father's son. Only this was the very son of God himself, the only begotten of the father, Jesus the Christ, the righteous one. And the wood for sacrifice is laid upon his back. And when Jesus the son asked his father for another provision, for a substitute Heaven fell silent. God, if there be any other way, Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. And heaven was silent. No substitute. There was no ram caught in the thicket. No relief. I guess the father won't go through with it. Instead, as it were, 
the knife plunges into the sun. As the Apostle Paul writes, he says, The Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. God spared Abraham's son, and he did not spare his own. And the reason he did not spare his own, beloved, is because he gave him up for us all. So there was a substitution at Calvary. There was a substitution, but this substitution did not spare the son. The substitution was the son. You and I, in other words, came off the altar. We crawled down from the altar. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crawls up on the altar, bound, feet and hands, pinned to a Roman cross. The one who through whom all creation was spoken is pinned to a Roman cross. And he climbs on the altar, not like a strong ram with horns. Just caught in the thicket, threshing back and forth. You think of a ram, you think of a strong animal. Not so with the Son of God. Not a a ram, but a lamb. Not like a conquering war general with all of his garb marching up and saying, take me instead of them. Not like that, like a lamb. He came to the altar like a helpless lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, the prophet Isaiah says. Heaven was silent to him and he was silent. Not a ram, but a lamb. He was bound so that we could go free. He was cut off so that we could be brought in. He was slaughtered so that we could be made alive. The father scorned the son so that he could smile upon us. Jesus became a dying sacrifice so that we could become living sacrifices, holy and acceptable before God. This, beloved, is the gospel. This is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. This is what we live and die for. This is our greatest hope in life and in death substitutionary atonement. Jesus the Christ for us. And Abraham did say that God would provide a lamb. And indeed he did. He provided a lamb. You remember John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What does John the Baptist say? Behold the conquering king. Behold the ram. Behold the bull. No, he says, behold the lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. This would not be a ram or a bull or a goat. 
that would just merely cover God's people, only to need another sacrifice, another animal, another animal. No, this one would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth from as far as the east is from the west. That is how far he has removed our transgressions from us. He has buried our sins underneath the depths of the sea. God chooses to remember them no more because the Lamb died in our place. This is substitutionary atonement. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is our message for the world. And we cannot send this message out if we are not marveling at it ourselves. I have told you guys when I got back from sabbatical that Malia and I could not escape the urgency of evangelism. The urgency of evangelism. And we were so delighted to hear that that was in all of you as well. The time for wasting is done. We have an announcement. We have atonement. We have the Lamb of God. God has provided, but we have no message if we don't marvel. We won't say it if we don't believe it, if we don't think we need this substitute. So here's my application. Let's marvel at grace this morning. Let's marvel at grace this morning. If sitting in your seat and just with your palms up is how you do it. Do it. If, if hitting your face before your God on this carpet, literally on your face, then do it. If standing in awe of the Messiah is how you marvel, then marvel at his grace this morning. There is no other hope in life and death. God did provide and his provision is enough.